If you would open the Word of God to Hebrews 12.15, that's the text that I'm going to be speaking on to this evening. Um, <clears throat> the Lord decided we needed a double portion of grace today because uh, uh, David Jerizzo preached on grace this morning and I'm preaching on grace this evening, so we needed the double portion today. Um, but that's good for us because you can never have enough grace. Um, so our verse today is Hebrews twelve fifteen. Uh, it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So before we get into the verse, we need to do just a little bit of groundwork because... I'm dropping us in the middle of the book of Hebrews on a single verse, and it's giving you a command, right? And if you go to the Bible and you read a command and you don't understand that there's a lot that goes into this command, you're going to treat the Bible like it's a book of rules and not a book of promises. And the Bible is both. Um, But this is law right here. This is a command of God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So the book of Hebrews is a book that is written to the Hebrews. It's written to the Jewish people. Uh, There was a um, great surging of Jewish believers in the first century, and the problem was was these believers, which had put their faith in Christ, were now all of a sudden being persecuted. They were being hunted down during this age. It was an age in which Christians were hated because, as the book of Acts tells us, they were turning the whole world upside down. And so these Jewish believers were tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. They were tempted to go back to Jewish practice. They were tempted to go back to the sacrificial system. They were tempted to go back to the high priests and the shadows and the types. They were tempted to go back because the Jewish people were a long-established religion that wasn't suffering persecution the way that the Christians were. And the writer to the Hebrews is continual argument over and over and over and over again is don't go back. There is no back. You can only move forward. The Old Testament is obsolete. It's done away with. There is no more sacrificial system. Those things were shadows, things that were symbols that were pointing forward to the substance of what salvation was all about, which is in Christ Jesus. And so when we get to this passage in Hebrews 12, we have to recognize that he's walked us through uh, the supremacy of Christ above angels, um, that he upholds the world by the word of his power, uh, that there is no salvation outside of Christ, that we must keep our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, that, the, uh, that even those esoteric examples in the Old Testament, like Melchizedek, right, is a high priest that is supposed to represent Christ. He came from nowhere, and he left without an explanation. He is an eternal priest. This is the priesthood of Christ. So we have even small one or two verse examples in the Old Testament that is to demonstrate to us who Christ is. And so we're getting to this point at the end of the book of Hebrews that's dealing with chastisement or the need to endure, or do not grow weary. 
Because when you're a Christian and you believe that God is in control of everything because he's the Lord God Almighty and he's sovereign over the whole earth and he's in the heaven and he does all that he pleases, you're going to be asking yourself the question, if God loves me, why is all this suffering happening to me? It's like my life was peachy keen before I became a Christian. And as soon as I became a Christian, I'm watching all of my friends being captured and fed to lions and being hung up on crosses and burned on stakes. That's the Christian faith to these people. And they're asking themselves the question, why is this happening? God, where are you? What is the purpose of this? And he said, basically, back in, or back in verse 1 of chapter 12, after we go through the whole list of the hall of faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, these men who suffered for the sake of God. He says, therefore, since we have, are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And our suffering, our suffering is the thing that connects us to Christ. You, you, you will be glorified with him provided you suffer with him, is what the book of Romans tells us. It says in verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Look to Jesus if you're feeling tired in your faith. Look to him. There is no other way. It isn't, I'm going to muster myself up. I'm going to get get back into reading the word. I'm going to pray more. And these things are going to restore my faith. No, here in this verse, it says, look to Christ. Look to Christ. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. He will bring you to completion. But that doesn't mean that this is going to be easy. This is going to be hard. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Brothers and sisters, do you not recognize that sin is so abhorrent that you need to resist it to the point of shedding your own blood? This is not an easy faith. This is a faith that is free. It is given to you without any recompense. He says it is yours. All you have to do is believe in it. But once you believe in it, you will suffer like Christ. There is no way getting around it. It says in the next verse, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. When you become a Christian, what do we call it? You're born again. You're born into the family of God. You are no longer a child of Satan. The Bible says you're a child of Satan before you're a child of God. You're a child of wrath before you're a child of grace. Once you become a child of grace, you now have a perfect heavenly father who is going to discipline you into the kingdom of God so that you may be one who walks rightly and properly in this life. It is for discipline that you have to do. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Brothers and sisters, if your faith is a silent faith that is untested, that is comfortable, you have to ask yourself, is it true? Is it real? Is it genuine? The Bible speaks of no Christian that has an easy go of it. You might have met some Christians that seem to have an easy go of it. I bet you they'll tell you a lot different. 
This life is a life of sin and suffering. Down to verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So I want you to remember, these are Jewish believers who have made a profession of faith in Christ, and they're facing a crossroads. They're going, do we go forward with Christ and suffer the persecution that that we are called to, or do we go back to what we have always known, the sacrificial system and Judaism? And the answer, obviously, is we're going to stay with Christ. We're going to continue to follow him so that that which is out of joint... Right? Because a socket that is out of joint is dislocated. It needs to be put back in. Right? I know that you've probably seen that where a disjointed socket on a television show, you just kind of snap it back into place and it, and it goes right back in because the joint fits the socket. Right? Um, and this is what the writer to the Hebrews is trying to do to the Hebrews is something's out of place here. There's a disconnect. They're not recognizing there isn't the old covenant anymore. There's only salvation in Christ. And he's getting these... He's, he's, putting them together, right? And so when we get down to verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see to the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Once we get to this passage, we're recognizing that this is just not a command. It's a result of an understanding of your place in this world. You're a child of God. You have faith in Christ. You recognize that you bring nothing to the salvation of God, and you only plead to him for mercy. And when you get to this place of seeing to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, you yourself have first had to recognize that grace of God in your own life. You cannot be going around trying to teach people, or, or, or you will not want to be trying to teach people about the grace of God until you first recognize it in your own life. You see, if we come to the Bible with a list of commands that we want to take to give to other people on how they're supposed to be, we first must recognize that they're living in faith and not try and just tell them what to do with the Bible. So the five questions that we need to ask ourselves if we want to understand verse 15 and 12, because that was all introduction, um, is... uh, What is grace? And if you were here this morning, we got a good primer on what that was, but I'm going to go through that. How does one see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God? What is failing to obtain the grace of God? And what does a root of bitterness springing up in the absence of grace mean? And how does it defile many? So that's five questions. I hope we can get to them all. If not, I have another opportunity later. But um, So let's start simply at a definitional level. What is grace. Grace, as it is taught in the Bible, is the word that sums up all of God's goodness exercised towards his people. And it's often in relation to their salvation. There's kind of three ways you can look at it, but that's really what we're going to hone in on this one. John Owen, uh, the Puritan writer, put put it this way. By the grace of God, God's favor and acceptance in Christ as it is proposed and declared by the gospel is intended. He's saying, this grace is salvific that we're talking about. Herein, all spiritual mercies and privileges in adoption, justification, sanctification, and consolation do consist. For these things proceeding from the love, 
grace and goodness of God in Christ, and being effects thereof are called the grace thereof. That's a really fancy way to say that when we say grace, what we're talking about is what Christ has done for you on the cross, what he is working in you by the power of his Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit of God, that you are looking at Christ, and that that vine, that source, is producing in you the fruit of righteousness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. These things are growing in you. Um, So I really don't care if it's a Sunday school answer um, that that when we're looking at grace, uh, uh, David Gerizzo said, when we're looking at grace, the best way to know it is by looking at Jesus Christ because you know the Sunday school answer is always Jesus. I don't care that the Sunday school answer is Jesus because that's how simple it is that a child can have eternal life in Christ just as much as the aged veteran can. That's the basic gospel. Um, so our second question is, is how, do, how do we see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God? Because it's not merely you see to it that you don't fail the grace of God. It is your duty as a brother or sister in, in Christ to make sure that as much as it depends upon you, you're going to these people with the gospel message, with Jesus Christ, and bringing that grace with you wherever you go. So that no matter what you speak, no matter how you act, it is always seasoned with grace. <clears throat> when someone has offended you, and this is going to kind of get in the particular application of this, when someone has offended you, what is the first thing that you ask yourself? Right? How can I get back at them? No, that's not Christian. Do I just ignore it? No, that's not Christian. The first thing you have to ask yourself is, is what I'm being offended about right now something the word of God has told me to be offended by? First and foremost, right? Because it's very easy to be offended by many different things. You have to ask yourself, does the Bible say I should be bothered by this? If the answer is no, don't be bothered by it. Stop thinking about it. It's your pride and your arrogance and thinking what you deserve. That means that you're going to be thinking about that. Stop thinking about it. If we are people completely saturated in grace, dwelling long upon the goodness of God in Christ Jesus towards us, horribly uh, rebellious sinners who sin daily, we should be sitting and weeping at the Savior's feet with the full knowledge and belief of his salvation towards us. Our utmost aim should be glorifying God by displaying the same grace he used to save us. You see, brothers and sisters, if, again, we're going to keep repeating this, if you have never known the grace of God, you will not demonstrate that to other people. You will be a mean, rude, resentful, judgmental Christian. That's an oxymoron. So, <clears throat> let's say, here's another practical, practical example, because, you know, between here and Phoenix is the 10. So, um, let, let's say someone cuts you off in traffic. Our natural tendency is to react angrily, right? And have some very choice words for that person if we found ourselves having the opportunity. But does the word of God tell us it's something to be offended by? Should you be offended by being cut off in traffic? It's a simple thing, but let me ask you this. Some of those things that come up in your heart when someone cuts you off traffic is hatred. 
It's anger. It's malice. It's bitterness. Those are the works of the flesh. God says that's the equivalent of murder. Murder. Check your heart. It's not a small thing. It, it, it earns you eternal condemnation. But what does the word God positively tell us? And because it's kind of a tough question. In a way, there weren't any cars in the days of the Bible. Um, so it didn't have a lot to say about cars. Um, another problem is judging intentionality versus unintentionality. Um, did the guy cut you off because he was being a jerk or because he didn't check his blind spot? Both are bad. One's a lot easily more forgiven. And the final and largest problem is our sentiments and judgments should be so integrally infused with what God says about how we should live in this life that our reaction should be grace, not judgment. Mercy, love, forgiveness, not hatred, bitterness, or wrath. So even, so although the Bible doesn't speak about cars, it speaks about spiritual, eternal truth, uh, which is what the attitude of the genuine Christian should be towards others. So even in those moments of offense, your boss is coming down hard on you, your spouse is not agreeing with you, you've been on the wrong side of an argument for far too long. In those moments, those moments, is where the substance and reality of our faith is tested. In the middle of a trial, it will be seen by all that you have been tested, and the genuine character of your faith is true. So our proper disposition for a man or woman resting and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ when offended is grace and forgiveness and love and mercy And so, just as your brother and sister should be on their watchtowers, making sure that uh, when Satan comes with his trials and temptations and and battling, you need to be on your watchtower too. Making sure that each and every single one of us in this church are beacons for the light, so that we may shine the light on those things that might be tempting us and uh, causing us to look away from the grace and forgiveness of God. It is your duty it is not a suggestion. It is not, a, an, it is not advice. It is when you see a brother sinning, maybe they have sinned against you. There is no just letting it go. It's either forgiveness, and that's whole and total forgiveness, or you confront them and ask them to repent because of the sin they've done. There's no middle ground. This means if you refuse to bring up the sin or forgive it, Um, it should not even be a big enough deal for you to think about it. If you find yourself thinking about an offense and being hurt by it, you either must bring it up or forgive it. Um, Listen to Matthew 5, 23 through 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If you remember my sermon in Psalm 51, it was first that you needed to have a broken heart over your sin. 
You needed to ask God for mercy and cleansing to have a right relationship with him before you go and try and restore your relationship with your brother. But immediately, as soon as you recognize that relationship is restored and satisfied and in Christ and firm, you're going to go to your brother and you're not going to defend yourself. You're going to ask for forgiveness or you're going to confront them because you know that's what the word of God tells you to do. It's no longer about saving face. It's no longer about protecting your ego. It's no longer about making sure that that you're not traumatized. It's you do what God tells you to do no matter how much it scares you because God says so and that's that. So failing to obtain the grace of God for for yourself is failing to believe in the promise of grace. And failing to believe in the promise of grace is failing to believe in the promise of forgiveness. If you fail in believing that God has forgiven you all of your sins, of course, absolutely, you will find some trick or some loophole, perhaps a doctrinal formulation or just a plain old-fashioned excuse as to why you possibly couldn't forgive this or that person for this or that sin. We've all heard these before. I could never forgive them. Their sin hurt me too much. Or they sinned against me. It's their job to come to me. Perhaps, how could I ever forgive someone who continues to sin against me in the same exact way this many times? How could I do that? Whatever the justification or excuse is, we humans naturally tend to hold on to grudges. Forgiveness, grace, mercy, these are supernatural impositions onto this life. The reason why the Bible so vociferously commands us to forgive over and over again is because sin is horrifically offensive and therefore easy to justify its lack of forgiveness. Sin is bad. There's nothing worse. It, it, it earns eternal hell forever. Forever. I, you can't wrap your brain around it. It's absolutely vile, wretched, and Christ took it upon the cross and we as sinful human beings think that we can hold a sin against someone else because the very nature of sin is bent properly more towards receiving justice than grace. When someone sins, what you want to do is punish them because that's what that sin deserves. But God tells you to do the opposite. Forgive them. Love them. Be tender-hearted towards them. Listen here to Romans 14.10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand um, before the judgment seat of God. You know, when you go into some of those older museums, maybe they're looking at the monks, you'll see the monks looking at a skull in their hand. And what they're doing isn't macabre. It isn't merely because it's something that interests them. It's the man contemplating his own death. Because you see, every single one of you in this room, doesn't matter if you're strong, doesn't matter if you're a genius, doesn't matter what accomplishes that, accomplishments that you make in this life, you will all die. And you will be forgotten. The annals of history will likely mischaracterize whatever you've done if it characterizes you at all. Brothers and sisters, 
You are small, little, insignificant, a blade of grass, a wisp of smoke, here today and gone tomorrow. You are no judge over your brothers. 1 John 3.15, and I pray we do not need to blister under this passage. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This unforgiveness, this inability to recognize and obtain the forgiveness of God, this lack of belief in that love towards you, can only ever result in a root of bitterness. It can only ever lead to despising your brother. You see, if you've received the blessing of eternal life in Christ Jesus and have truly recognized the depth of your depravity and sin before him, there's absolutely no way you will not do everything in your power to make sure anyone who is commonly in your life hears about Jesus Christ. That's what you're going to do. It's going to be your utmost passion. You're going to forget about the world around you because you're recognizing, I'm only going to be here for less than 100 years, and then with him or not in heaven forever. I mean, just recognize that. Let that sit with you. This life is nothing compared to what is going to be revealed to us in heaven. Live that way, not in this life, with our priorities right here before us, with a myopic, short-sighted picture of what we need right now. What's amazing is the grace of God has one core substance, that is, Jesus Christ, but many multifaceted applications. You're never going to get past Jesus. That's it. That's all. But it looks different sometimes because the grace of God can look like a gospel presentation to an unbeliever. It looks like an encouraging word to a faint-hearted sinner. It looks like a sharp rebuke to one teaching false teaching. It looks like consistent family worship in your living room with your children not paying attention. (laughs) The grace of God is presented to all people in your life whenever you choose to live a life of faithfulness to Christ. Seeing to it that no one fails to obtain the grace is serving brothers and sisters as the word of God tells you to according to their situation. It's not a one-size-all-fits pattern. Everyone needs to hear the gospel. Everyone needs to believe the gospel. But that grace, sometimes you come to an angry brother. And you just have to say, let's pray. And they might be angry at you for that. It's like, I don't care if you're angry at me for that. Let's pray. Here's a word. It says, be angry and do not sin. They go, ah, I'm angry. It's like, well, don't sin. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to wrath. I have watched a very strong, angry man hear that scripture. And the word of God and power came over him. And he went, Because the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Sometimes you may not even have the words, but you've read a book, and you know that this book that I have meets their situation. Don't hold it back. Get it. If you like that book, buy yourself another copy. Don't hold it back. It could be a charitable gift. Maybe they're going through a hard time. Maybe they need a pair of shoes. Give them, that, give them those shoes and say, this is from the Lord Jesus Christ because I'm an ambassador of the gospel and here I am showing you his love and his mercy. See to it. See to it that no one fails to obtain 
the grace of God. And again, this is only true if you yourself have received it first, so make sure that you have received it. And genuinely believe that all of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. That there is nothing that is held against you according to God because it has been laid on Christ. And that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And all you need to do is receive it by faith. That there is no work that you need to do. That there is no way that you need to run. That there is no effort that you need to put forward that keeps you out of the kingdom of God. Christ has brought you in. The gates of heaven have swung open if you put your faith in Christ. There is no other salvation besides Jesus save me and he does. But let's consider a root, right? Because it says that there's a root of bitterness that's springing up. Something that grows beneath the surface of the earth. It's unseen. You cannot tell its size or nature until it's uprooted. It develops in the darkness and begins to die the moment it comes into the light. Plants use roots to draw in nutrients. When a bitter root springs forth, all the nutrients are taken in by that bitter root. Make the plant bitter and can make even the water coming from it bitter. The writer to the Hebrews chose the symbol of a root to teach us that if you get the grace of God wrong, If you get the gospel of your salvation wrong, if you don't understand forgiveness, the whole rest of whatever your plant might be is bitter. They don't like being around you because you taste bad. And by that, you're not fun to be around. You're, You're an evil judge. You're a mean person. You're a hypocrite. If you do not want to forgive and do not display the grace of God and mercy to others... All that can remain is the silent, simmering, hateful judgment towards all those who offend and disagree with you. Largely, this sort of unforgiveness, this sort of hatred is what tears churches apart and prevents your prayers from being answered. Listen to James here. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. If you were here this morning, you learned that grace is all the power behind your growth and godliness. That grace is the means that God uses to bring you forward to the kingdom of God. Recognizing grace and growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is how you kill sin, how you douse the flames of worldly passions. Grace removes any sense that you have any right to anything. What do you have to quarrel about when you are walking in the grace of God When you recognize that the only thing that you have earned from God is death and hell. A man asks for your coat. You don't quarrel. You display grace and give. Another man slaps you on your cheek. You don't fight back. You give him your other cheek also. A final man persecutes you and your family unto death. You don't hate and murder. You forgive and love All this because you know that God has graciously provided for you in Christ for eternity. That knowledge is enough to freely lose any earthly possession, even your own life. No root of bitterness can spring up in a person who has that kind of faith in God. So have that faith. It doesn't have to be big. You don't have to be a supreme leader in the church. 
It's faith the size of a mustard seed, and that's enough to move mountains. Today, brothers and sisters, run back to Christ and take a long, fresh drink of the grace of God. Come to God on your belly, worshiping him and under the immense blessing that we have in Christ, desiring earnestly, fervently, strongly to display that to others. And if you don't have that desire, ask in your heart right now, bow your head and cry out to God, I want to display that to the world so that your kingdom can go forth in power and that there would be nothing holding it back in my life, that I would be useful to you, a tool sharpened for the kingdom of God. And if you have a root of bitterness that's sitting beneath the surface because you have sins that you're offended by that you have not addressed with brothers or sisters in Christ, address them. Rather, I would have you forgive them and move past them. But if you need to address them, address them according to the word of God. And ask yourself the question, is this something that God's word tells me to be offended by? And if it's not, let it go, because your sentiments are not in line with what God's word has said for you. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who, have, who has called us to his own glory and excellence. And that divine power is the gospel, is the grace of God in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us more grace, we ask you, Lord. More mercy. Grace and mercy we ask from you so that we may know when Romans 2.4 says, your kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, I pray that there would not be a single good thing in our lives that we do not go back to you, God, and say, thank you. May this be another reason that I should shine forth brightly in the pursuit of the glory of God and the kingdom of God on this earth. Lord, I pray that as we depart this place to go into the world during the week as the, uh, as the world is going to tempt us to anxiety and fear and weakness and all the things that remind us of how small we are, Lord, um, I pray that you would guide us and strengthen us and encourage us and grant us blessing and um, fervor, God, but according to your grace in Christ Jesus. We thank you and praise you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.